0: hey brian hey dan hey listeners welcome to the 55th episode of the goods film podcast 55 indeed nifty 50 nifty 55 we are right in the midst of Spooktober. Spooky month. Horror season. Where's your mind right now, Brian? Are you in full-on preparation for Halloween and into the the spooky stuff?
1: Yeah, I think it's peak time of the year. Been rolling out the the outside decorations kind of slow this year, but they'll they'll be up in time. I've got the 12-foot skeleton standing in the yard, so I feel like that's the centerpiece.
0: Right, it's iconic for sure. What about you? Where are you at? Are you feeling it? Well, much more after this past week, having watched four slashers in the past week, definitely helping me get there. But yeah, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to be for Halloween. I think my daughters are going the unoriginal route of frozen Disney princesses. I last we've we've been slightly more interesting things in the past. I feel like being Anna and Elsa is like just the most generic possible costume for a girl but that's all right i'll let them be what they want to be and they it's cute they want to match each other they want to be anna and elsa so um that should be fun but for me i I don't know maybe i'll try to match them as like sven or something or maybe i'll be do something different i've always wanted to dress up as steve from blues clues which has nothing to do with the frozen princesses obviously but might be something i'd do anyways
1: yeah would be it'd be timely this year
0: yeah with that that video
1: and speaking of things timely this year i'm torn between being the q shaman or possibly omni-man from invincible the mm. jk simmons bad superman cuz he's got a mustache
0: okay yeah both 2021 selections exactly but yeah it was good to catch up with some iconic horror movies Because what did we watch? I don't think we've said yet. That's right, yeah. So we watched the 1996 meta-slasher Scream, directed by Wes Craven. And we also ended up watching, uh, I think both of us did, all three of its released sequels. Scream 2, 3, and 4. That's right. So
1: thus far on the show, I don't know who's been keeping track, but my track record keeping up with sequels has not been too good when we kind of learned about them after the fact and and mulled them over i sometimes have left them out i didn't watch more american graffiti or the other um seizun suzuki japanese movie that your brother recommended so i thought after you watched four sleepy hollows i really needed to pick up my game and and watch all the screams so here we are ready with the full franchise
0: awesome yeah well, you know, no pressure. We're both gainfully and busily employed and, and off doing our own things, so well, no pressure to keep
1: Scream up. Scream five is coming in January for some reason. Why is it coming out in January? <laughs> uh, but there will soon be a new chapter and we may owe you an update.
0: Yeah. That is some bullshit though, isn't it? Who's thinking of spooky stuff in January? Maybe know. for
1: my birthday we'll go we'll go watch Scream Five.
0: No, I I, I think we should, especially if we uh are feeling feeling good about the movies and good about this episode when we're done. I think that would be a fun outing for us. But yeah, let's let's talk about Scream. We'll start. We'll focus on Scream One. That's our official selection of the episode, and then we can do kind of a quick hits on on the other three, and then maybe toss a rating on all four of them at the conclusion of the episode. How does that sound?
1: That sounds good. I'll say overall, there was more consistency than I expected. A lot of the team stuck together. So
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. So one thing you've said in the past, to me, I think both on and off air is that although you are a horror host and an avowed horror movie fan, that you actually don't have deep coverage of the slasher subgenre. Is that accurate? That's right. I think
1: people who talk to me are often kind of surprised and maybe a little disappointed that there's a lot of horror movies I actually have not seen, especially trending towards the more recent stuff. And I, I mean, not that 1996 is recent by any means. This is 25 years now. But most of my knowledge of slasher films, and I'm curious to know more about yours, comes from a couple of different recaps that I have consumed. So... I was very influenced in college coming across James Rolfe's videos online. Uh, He's most famous as the angry video game nerd, but he's also very into filmmaking and film history. And from every October spanning like 2007 to, I don't know, 2013 or 2014, he did this series called Monster Madness where every day of the month he would do a horror movie review. And the first year that he did it, in 2007, it was like a crash course in horror cinema history. Like, all, all the important ones that you would shout out at first glance. So, you know, Psycho and Halloween and The Exorcist and Jaws and starting with the early universals and stuff. Just a really good, concise introduction. And one of the latest chapters, because it went in chronological order... One of the last videos from that year, 2007, talked about Scream. So we'll we'll get a little more into my understanding of Scream prior to watching the film. But uh, what about you, Dan? What's what's your exposure? Oh, I also want to shout out uh, Buzzed On Movies, as I have many times before. But they are more comprehensive horror fans, I would say. They watch just about everything that comes out. And they have released detailed recap coverage of the Saw franchise, also the Halloween franchise. I might have heard some murmurs that the Friday the 13th franchise might be in the works, but they haven't done Scream. And so this is virgin ground for us.
0: (laughs) I have seen some of the Friday 13th pop up on Matt of Buzzed on Movies letterboxed accounts. So that tracks with me, but... Sorry if we're spoiling your uh, your upcoming episode, Buzzed on Movies. I'm not sure how many crossover listeners there are. so. But yeah, my, my experience is also very limited. Of movies that are canonical, what you think of as sla- slashers, I saw Nightmare on Elm Street and Nightmare on Elm Street 2 in preparation for a movie night for the Patreon members of the alternate ending podcast and website. And um, that's actually very relevant because we've gotten more exposure to not actually watching them, but, but kind of reading reviews of them and hearing thoughts on them because of that podcast and that website. In particular, one of the contributors is not one of the main three members of the podcast, but he, he shows up frequently and he hosts um, a bunch of their episodes and um, he writes some of their reviews is someone named Brennan Klein. And he, he's also pretty active on the Discord and on Letterboxd. And he is a super intensive fan of the 1980s slashers. Um, I really love following him on Letterboxd. When he's kind of deep in it, you'll see like this random 1983 Italian slasher or something pop up with a two and a half star review and a breakdown of it. And you'll go and look, it'll be something like, 75 people have ever logged in on Letterboxd or something like that. He, I think he's trying to review every single slasher of the 1980s. So a while ago, I reached out to him and I said, hey, man, I love your, your coverage of slashers. And I know you're a big fan, but I don't even really know where to get started. Could you tell me a little bit about, I don't know, what you would recommend for someone who's trying to get into slashers or like hit the important points? And, and this is what he came up with. I'm actually going to read it verbatim here because I think it's, it's useful. He says, I always recommend my entry point, which was the Scream franchise. It really sets a roadmap for viewing the, fl- the slasher. Feel free to pursue each film for as many sequels as you can tolerate. But for now, I'm just going with the originals. I recommend going Scream, then Halloween, then Friday the 13th, then Nightmare on Elm Street, then Swoop Back Around for some History, Psycho, to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, to Black Christmas, then the 80s Greatest Hits. Terror Train, The Burning, My Bloody Valentine, Happy Birthday to Me, The House on Sorority Row, Silent Night, Deadly Night, April Fool's Day, The Hitcher, The Stepfather, Child's Play, and on into the future, Candyman, Urban Legend, American Psycho, Final Destination, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, Cold Prey, You're Next, The Final Girls, and Happy Death Day. So I'm hoping at some point to really go through those because i think it's fun subgenre from what i've seen very trashy there's a certain amount of fear and excitement to it but mostly it's just kind of cathartic and trashy watching jackasses run around with knives stabbing good-looking teenagers and i don't know i think uh, i read somewhere that when things are this similar and this formulaic you learn to appreciate the subtle differences in the flavor and the, the subtle things they do differently and I can see how that would be appealing with, with slashers. I'm that way with some subgenres of film, like with the teen comedies that are all exactly the same formula, same types of jokes, seeing them slightly differently. I, I get an appreciation for the nuances of them. And I can see how this would be a subgenre to also support that. And then his last remark on that was, he said, then hit me up for the weird shit. But of those recommendations of note, we covered Happy Death Day earlier in the podcast that's right and aside from that slasher movies i had seen before our coverage
1: for this episode i think friday the 13th part nine jason goes to hell i saw that i saw during well during covid COVID's still going on but earlier in the pandemic i did one of those things where a group rents out a theater and i went to see halloween 2018 then what else I feel like I saw one of the Freddies. I might have seen Freddy vs. Jason at some point. Gotcha. That, that's about it. Unless you count Psycho. I have seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I guess, so I'm not a complete neophyte, but there's a lot of gaps. Well, I do think it's interesting that in that recommended reading list or viewing list from your friend, he mentions Final Destination. I've seen several of the Final Destinations. Those are not really slasher movies. It's more like fate constructs Rube Goldberg machines that kill people.
0: I'm not 100% sure I can ask him about that, why he included that. I, I would say the connection is likely that the cadence and the way that ornately these young, attractive people die one by one in like physical, gory ways is of akin to slashers, if not a slasher in the sense of somebody running around with a machete.
1: I guess that's true. But I think if you count Final Destination, you got to count Saw, which he doesn't have on his
0: list. And I have seen all the Saws. So So I I think the difference is that I'm not saying that you're necessarily wrong in that, but I think there's a fine line between slasher and torture porn. And I haven't seen any of the, the Saws, but I know their reputation is for like dragging out and making excruciating the violence of it, which the final destinations I've seen, I've seen two of them. It's pretty abrupt. Like it's, it's not, I don't think of it as a torture porn type scenario. So I think there is like somewhat of a distinction there, but I can certainly see the overlap of, of what you're saying because in, in saw you have like the characters die one at a time too. Right. Right. But I think I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. so, uh, just to kind of wrap up on on Brennan's input into this, and indeed, that is why I selected this, because it was the first one on his his recommended viewing list. I, I did tell him that we were going to watch Scream and that it was inspired by him putting it on the list and, and asked him if he wanted to say anything on the pod, and he, he wrote a little note for the listeners here. So this is what he said. He said, hi, everyone, Brennan here. The reason I chose Scream first for the list is because it's an excellent entry point to the slasher genre, and indeed it was my own. Scream is incredibly packed with slasher references, and after watching it and loving it, I was eager to check out the other films mentioned in the movie, which made me want to check out even more, leading me down the rabbit hole I'm still stuck in to this day. I think that Scream is ultimately flawed in some of the ways it represents the slasher genre, because it's more or less perfect, and slasher cinema, well, isn't. Scream was busy inventing the slick, sexy look that the slasher would use for years to come rather than copying the production style of the films it satirizes. The 80s movies tend to be more tawdry and cheap than Scream, so it can be a harsh transition for some people. Scream is also scary in a way that most slashers frankly aren't. But the pure love that screenwriter Kevin Williamson has for the genre is what propelled me through that to discover that I shared his passion. So thanks, Brennan, for giving us your expertise in that list and for writing a note to me and Brian and the listeners. And I'm ready to talk about Scream 1996. Cool. Well, listeners, I don't want to choke you with
1: context, but I did want to just say a little bit more about where Scream fits into horror history. So director Wes Craven has made a lot of horror movies, but one of his most iconic was the original Nightmare on Elm Street, but he didn't make any of the sequels. There's a dig early on in Scream, in the iconic phone conversation, one of them at least, where the voice on the phone and the the teenager are talking about, What's your favorite scary movie? That's a line that gets dropped many times in this franchise. And one of them says, Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think the voice on the phone says, Oh yeah, that's scary. But then, uh, I think it's Drew Barrymore. I think it is the very first scene in the movie. Uh, she says, yeah, but the rest sucked. And uh, so, little little Wes Craven uh, insert there. Right. But Wes Craven did finally return to the Freddy franchise in 1994 with the seventh film, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And that is the one that's super meta. It takes place on the set where a cast and crew are making a Freddy Krueger movie and, you know, Freddy deals in dreams, attacks people in their dreams, so like somehow he emerges from the dream realm and starts taking over and killing people on this film set. So clearly Wes Craven was bitten by a meta horror bug and maybe a little bit wanting to tear down what he had created or something, deconstruct it. And that was just going full force two years later when he made Scream. This movie is sort of an homage slash deconstruction and and almost intended as like a capper or finale to the slasher genre. Like this is the ultimate. Nobody needs to make a slasher movie after this one. And yet it ended up being super popular and reinvigorating the genre rather than bringing it to an end.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I th- I think that's all astute. And I definitely want to go see that. What's it called again? It's uh, like New Nightmare or Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I think right. that looks intriguing for sure. And I know that he has a long and varied career. I know he like made one random non-horror movie at some point. And he, I think he, was he the one who did the Hills Have Eyes? Yeah. And interestingly, he made
1: like the original Hills Have Eyes in the 70s. And then he did the remake in the 2000s. So weird. Yeah. It's like he's found himself a place in different eras of horror filmmaking.
0: So I'm not, I'm not deep on his, his filmography. He passed away in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. So he did direct all four of The Screams, but he did not obviously direct the latest one because he, he passed away about a half decade ago. I think the other prominent voice in The Scream franchise is the writer Kevin Williamson, who Brennan mentioned in his note to us. And so Kevin Williamson, he's actually a very interesting person, um, at least professionally, like seeing his arc. He kind of has a fairy tale story that I think a lot of us dream of happening to us someday. It's kind of like the pilot of the OC is a similar story to this, although that was I think the guy's name was Josh Schwartz, and it will not be the last time I mentioned the OC today. But um, basically, it's just this guy who had this script and was working on this script and got an agent and basically just, he was just a dude. He wasn't like already really in the movie business. He might've been like a low level guy. I'm not sure what he was actually doing, but he certainly wasn't like a creative honcho. And he sold this script and Wes Craven signed on for it. So like over the course of less than a year, he was like a relative nobody plucked out from obscurity because he wrote one good screenplay and then was like the screenwriter du jour for the next few years. I think he, so he wrote The Screams. He wrote, I Know What You Did Last Summer, which I, I think operates on somewhat of a similar level of Scream. I think it's got maybe a slasher element to it or at least has some tone similarities. I'm not 100% sure on that. I haven't seen it. Have you seen that one?
1: No, I just remember the trailers from back in the day and how, like Scream, it was followed rapidly by sequels. And- Right- I did like the naming convention because I think it's, I know what you did last summer. I still know what you did last summer and I'll always know what you did last summer. So
0: (laughs) yeah, I think he also was either the showrunner or the lead writer for the teen drama Dawson's Creek, which I've seen about half a season of and did some other like throwing in lots of references and meta stuff from media, although not in exactly the same way. But Kevin Williamson wrote three of the four that we're going to talk about tonight. And he also wrote the fifth Scream, the one that's going to be coming out in 2022. Or he might not have actually written that one. He might be like the producer and story advisor or something, but he is creatively involved in it. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's a combination of Craven and Kevin Williamson as the kind of lead voices here. So definitely pretty interesting to learn about and uh, very distinct And I think, as you said, more consistent than I think some of the slashers have a reputation for being, I think some of those ones that go like seven or eight or nine or 10 sequels deep are just known for being utter trash by later episodes, you know?
1: Yeah. And characters drop out of the franchise. Either they're killed outright. I mean, that's very common. It's kind of the name of the game. Right. But when that's the case, there's not much of a through line and Scream Managed to keep some players around in the mix.
0: For sure. So Scream stars, I'm just going to list the three who I think are the ones you're mainly referring to who managed to keep popping up in all the movies. And those are Nev Campbell. I I saw multiple pronunciations for for Nev, but I think that's how you pronounce it. It's Nev Campbell um, as Sydney Prescott. And she's kind of the main final girl the one who uh, is more or less the star of of all the films. Um, The two others who kind of the main characters of the franchise are Courtney Cox, uh, Monica from Friends, as the reporter and writer, Gail Weathers. And then David Arquette, always mustachioed, as the cop, Dewey. And I think worthwhile to note that Courtney Cox and David Arquette got married, at, not at the beginning of this, but at some point across the franchise.
1: Yeah, they got married between Scream 2 and Scream 3. So it's kind of funny. They play with the budding romance that, I guess, what, in High School Musical, they talked about uh, showmances. I think this, this must have been a case of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, it, yeah, of course, worth noting that they basically play love interests, although the movies don't really play that up too hard. But they are... More or less love interest. And I think in the fourth one, they're married. Yeah, it gets gets heavier as it goes along. Right. Do you want to talk about the plot of Scream for a bit now? Yes. Go for it. So um, Scream opens with a really iconic scene. And in my opinion, a phenomenal scene. The opening shot is Drew Barrymore. She's playing a character named Casey Becker. She's a high school student and she gets a phone call in this opening shot. She's putting some popcorn, Jiffy Pop, on the the oven. And this is a stranger who at first, it seems like it's a wrong number, but this guy keeps, he's got kind of a creepy voice. He keeps calling her and and bugging her more and more. And she says that she's about to watch a movie. And this phone call, which starts out like kind of flirty and kind of playful, escalates in creepiness. Uh, The turning point is like, they're being kind of flirty. And he says, what's your name? And she says, why do you want to know? And he says, I want to know who I'm looking at. And like immediately she freaks out and like looks out the window. Like this just went from, what's the line from, uh, I don't even remember what movie it was, but this just went from cute to restraining order or something like that. I can't remember if that was something on the goods or that we talked about that was somewhere else, but that's basically that's where it escalated to the level. And it, it just goes up from there.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, a couple of things, and we're, we're just going to be trading observations back and forth because this is like the key scream scene. But like one of his first questions is, so do you have a boyfriend? And she <laughs> says, no, but she does. You find out very clearly very soon that she does. And well, I mean, if I was in a committed relationship, I would not want my girlfriend talking to the creepy voice on the phone as like, let's see where this goes. Like, what the yeah. heck? <laughs> it's like there's a scary rando on the phone and you, you're you not going to name drop me?
0: Right. Until I'm tied in a chair? Oh, uh, you know, she's just flirting, though. She's a high school girl. That's what high school girls do, you know? No, but I see what you're saying. It's like she seems to have no stranger danger, which I want to raise my daughters to be more wary of random people asking them if they have a boyfriend. And this... Continues to escalate. This opening scene is pushes past 12 minutes. So it's almost 15 minutes. And it just gets more and more intense. And like you mentioned, yeah, the the person on the phone, the man on the phone basically like turns on the porch light and reveals that, or maybe it's Casey that turns on the porch light, I don't know, but reveals that, yeah, her boyfriend is kidnapped, duct taped to a chair there. And before long, the person on the phone... like threatening to kill her and gut her and stuff. And he appears on the scene in what will soon be the iconic ghost face mask. And and surely if you know anything about Scream, you've seen this mask. It's like, I think it's inspired by that painting, the Scream. It's like a stretched out face that's like sort of in a, I don't know if it's a smile or like a, a grimace but very ghostly and long. And there's, it's always accompanied by this black hood that covers the majority of your body and goes down to, to your feet.
1: I mean, it's, it's like a cheap Halloween costume that you can get anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very chintzy, like Grim Reaper robe. And then this mask that, as soon as this movie came out, was everywhere.
0: Right. For me, I remember right around when we were, you know, in middle school, and maybe for you was you were not the right, quite the right age for it, but when I was in middle school, it was the really cool thing to get the scream mask. But they made a specific one. Is it the one where you can pump the blood? Exactly, the hand pump, and the blood, fake blood, would like drip down your face. Yeah, and then this this scene hits its culminating point, and this ghost face is what this this persona of a murderer. It will be multiple people take the Ghostface persona across the franchise. But Ghostface ends up gutting and killing the boyfriend and then chasing Casey around and killing, gutting, and hanging her as well as the the end of this this really brutal opening scene. Any other thoughts on this scene before we we move on to the the movie proper? Well, it's also important to note
1: that Ghostface really loves slasher movies and like naming specific plot elements of different movies. That's he'll always call people on the phone and toy with them. He has the the voice on I watched this on Amazon Prime and one kind of cool thing about that streaming service is if you tap the screen, it will like give little trivia facts at different time codes in the movie. And one thing it said was that the actor who provides the voice on the phone, they like never let him meet the other actors or the other actors meet him. So he would just always be a creepy voice on the phone.
0: Oh, wow. That's cool. My last thought on this scene is I love this scene. I was scared shitless. I was like fingertips closed over my eyes, peeking through the gaps in my fingers, like just scared out of my I knew that she was going to get killed. I knew he was going to pop up like at least two or three times. And so I was just constantly on edge. I can't think of a time in my adult life that I've been as scared as I was watching this movie or at least this opening scene. It really worked for me. There's like some really creepy stuff. I like the way that the ghost face killer like moves in the background a few times and it gives you the sense that he's just always floating there. And then there's one or two reveals where he's like right up in your face that just like made me jump and my heart skip a couple of beats. If we were giving ratings just on this scene on our on our signature eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good to tour day good, I would legitimately give this opening scene a tour day good, our masterpiece rating, an eight out of eight. I think this is an absolutely phenomenal and memorable and iconic opening. Everything about it. I think the popcorn also really works. It like burns and it smokes and it's just a very interesting visual cue and as it like burns and smokes it like makes the whole thing feel more hellish and apocalyptic just as like it escalates in danger more and more so i really love this opening scene i thought it was the peak of the movie and the peak of the series so far
1: i was really struck that it's the opening scene of the movie this was like if you know anything about scream it's that why do you want to know my name so i can know who i'm looking at and it's within like three minutes of, of the the opening title card or, or whatever. It may even be before the title card. And I was not expecting that so quickly. Yeah. Uh, I remember this trailer from back. I assume in nineteen ninety six when I was only six years old. And like this scene is the trailer. I mean, you don't you know you don't get the the guts spilling out, but it's that setup with the phone call right up to that line and. I thought it would be a little further in. Yeah. Well, my last observation about this iconic scene is I've heard, once again, relating to horror film history, there are certain films that, like, change society in some way. They instill a fear that causes people to change their behavior. You know, they say, Jaws stopped people from swimming in the ocean. Well, this is the movie that made people get caller ID. (laughs) although there's a common trope in slasher movies and urban legends of when a stranger calls the cliched quote is the call is coming from inside the house but the problem in those scenarios is really that a serial killer is inside your house it's not that he's calling you (laughs) so knowing who's on the phone is not going to change the fact that a serial
0: killer is already inside your house. Right? Am I crazy? No, so the phone itself is not the problem. I think it's like, you know how you're scared of the dark because you don't know what's there. Something about the phone and it's this voice just flo- floating in from the void that could be literally anywhere just makes it so... I, I don't know. It-, it It's a very creepy setup where this person could be anywhere. Sure. But... My point is, if you're going to, if you're going out in 1997
1: to buy a caller ID, thinking it's going to fix a scream scenario, it isn't. (laughs) You're still going to have problems.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I wonder if this movie is the reason that millennials don't like talking on the phone. I know that's like a a media trope that millennials and younger hate using the phone. They want to email. They want to text. They want to fill out forms online. They don't want to call on the phone. And I've gotten over that somewhat, but I certainly up until I was like 25, I absolutely hated having to make a call. It made me so nervous. And maybe like the cultural DNA of Scream was injected into me over the course of of growing up with everybody afraid of serial killers calling them on the the phone. Could be. So yeah, after this, we, uh, we cut to our actual main character. Not Drew Barrymore, but by the way, I just want to point out the the opening death in a Scream movie became something of a thing as the series went along, like rising stars would want to be the person killed in the Scream movie. It was like a bat, like a badge of honor. Almost it was like a an honored cameo position, basically. So Drew Barrymore, of course, went on to a very successful career after this. And I think that is probably why that this position became so coveted. But this movie then cuts to Sidney Prescott, played by Nev Campbell. And she's our actual main character here. Um, she is a high school girl, and she is facing some dilemmas herself. First of all, a year ago, her mom was raped and murdered. And secondly, perhaps on the surface less significantly, she has a boyfriend named Billy Loomis, who is played by Skeet Ulrich. He is growing impatient at the pace of their relationship, which it's implied is or even directly said is in part because of the nature of her mom's death and trauma of that. And she is not doing what's the baseball phrase? I don't know. Stealing stealing home with the the boyfriend. She won't sleep with him. And that is frustrating to this boyfriend. So those are kind of her dilemmas at, at the start of the movie. My main question is, why was anyone ever named Skeet Ulrich? That's just a terrible name. I'm sorry. Skeet Ulrich.
1: Is it better than Mosquito? (laughs) In uh, in Doug, Skeeter was short for Mosquito. So
0: maybe maybe that's what's going on here. It's a, yeah, Skeeter from Doug situation. I will not be naming any of my kids Skeet. That's one thing I could tell you or nicknaming them that for that matter.
1: Well, his character name has an interesting legacy too. This is Billy Loomis. And it's just one of many nods to slasher history because in Psycho, the girl at the start, Marion Crane, who gets killed in the iconic shower scene, she has a boyfriend at the start of the movie named Sam Loomis. And the setup of that film is she's going to embezzle money from her company and then run off with Sam Loomis. But that ultimately doesn't work out. Uh, Norman Bates intervenes. But then later in the movie, Sam Loomis is involved with Marion's sister, Lila, and they're the ones, like, solving the mystery and catching the killer. Then Psycho connects to Halloween. You got your, you know, your conspiracy pegboard on the wall, Charlie Day style. Because in Halloween, the final girl star is Jamie Lee Curtis, who was the daughter of the actress who played Marion Crane shower girl. And in Halloween, Michael Myers' psychiatrist who teams up with Jamie Lee Curtis to chase him down is named Dr. Loomis. Now here we're continuing the history because we've got Billy Loomis.
0: That's some good connection there. That name also recurs in at least one of the sequels. So I hadn't thought of that. So thank you for for pointing that one out. So the next day after these murders... At, at Woodsboro High School, we meet basically the whole cast of the film. And an important thing here is we don't know who Ghostface is, but we know it's a, a real person. And so the, the obvious implication is that someone that we're meeting here, these are all potential suspects. And someone that we're meeting here of this cast of characters is indeed the one wearing the Ghostface mask and committing all of the murders. I think Sydney is pretty clearly ruled out. Billy Loomis is definitely not ruled out. Others who are not ruled out, I would say, are Sydney's best friend Tatum, played by Rose McGowan, her school principal, Henry Winkler, that is the Fonz, or Barry Zuckercorn from Arrested Development. Um, we also meet Dewey, who is David Arquette. Here he's a, a local deputy, and I think he's also Tatum's brother, the, the best friend's brother. And then another one is Tatum's boyfriend and also like best friend of the boyfriend, Billy Loomis. And it's a character named Stu. And he is played by Matthew Lillard, who just gives a bravura performance of Nick Cage, unhinged intensity. I was just here for all of Matthew Lillard in this this first movie. I really loved it. I feel
1: like Matthew Lillard always plays himself. (laughs) And what you might know Matthew Lillard better from is he took on the role of Shaggy in the Scooby-Doo live-action movies and now plays him in the cartoon as well.
0: Yeah, and he is something of an internet meme, internet icon, and he handles it very humbly and appreciatively. So he's an easy man to admire. But yeah, he plays Stu here. Uh, Another one is this kind of pop culture film geek goober guy named Randy Meeks, played by Jamie Kennedy. Then there's, as mentioned, the the local reporter who is named Gail Weathers, that's played by Courtney Cox, and her cameraman named Kenny, played by W. Earl Brown. Then there's Cotton Weary. So he's played by Lee Schreiber. Uh, spoiler, he ends up being a pretty minor character in this film, but he plays the convicted murderer of Sidney's mom and... Yeah, he's, I guess, in prison. I don't know how much of a suspect he actually is here, but he's someone who will recur. And then the last one is Sydney's dad, Neil, who is supposedly on a business trip as these murders are happening. So that's kind of the lineup that we got. And we're we're thinking about how could these people be the murderer? Where are we seeing them? What are they doing that's suspicious, et cetera? Who would be the surprising one to be the murderer? What would be the good twist? So... What did you think of this setup, Brian, where we're, we're learning, meeting all those characters and trying to figure out who the murderer is? It's almost more like a whodunit.
1: Yes. This f- franchise is kind of like Scooby-Doo episodes where creepy stuff is happening and we are introduced to a retinue of characters and we know it's one of them. Although in this first movie, like right after the murders happen, you know, the cops are interrogating all of them. And my thought was, why? Why does it have to be one of these people? I mean, all that we know is that Drew Barrymore and her boyfriend got slashed. And I guess these are the people who know them, but it it really screams just like crazy serial killer to me. And and why it has to be somebody they know, I, I'm not sure.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. I'd have to watch the movie again to see how much it pushes. It's definitely one of these people. I was just operating under that assumption because, you know, I was... Figuring it wouldn't be a very interesting story if all of a sudden there was some random serial killer who appeared on the news and happened to be the killer. Although that's kind of what Happy Death Day did.
1: Right. That's a conversation we had during our Happy Death Day episode.
0: Yeah. And in that case, I thought they were doing enough with everything separate from the killer that I wouldn't have minded if it ended up just being that weird serial killer guy. But here it was so much about meeting these characters that... It felt like it had to be one of them from the start. So I don't know. And I guess I just kind of knew that that was a thing in Scream from cultural osmosis. Right. That it's it's a It.
1: Yeah, I'll say I, I knew that as well from the, the James Rolfe video that mm-hmm. being that this is a common Halloween costume, it's something that anybody can don. And that actually there are many different ghost faces as the franchise progresses.
0: Right. So one important dynamic that informs the rest of the series is that Gail Weathers is the Courtney Cox character here. She's the reporter and she has a major beef with Sydney. And in fact, she wrote a book alleging that Cotton who was convicted on Sydney's testimony was actually framed for the murder and wasn't the one who raped and killed Sydney's mom. And so there's like a dramatic Sydney punches Gail scene that's cathartic to the viewer because Gail is kind of an aggressor on Sydney and we're supposed to read her as kind of trashy. Although, spoilers, she ends up being right. Yeah, I'm going to say, we're going to be full on spoilers here. And if you don't want to be spoiled on the Scream series, I don't know if we're going to be full spoilers on the sequels, but I'm planning to be if you're up for it, Brian.
1: Yeah, at least number one. We may not go as thorough with the recaps in the later ones, but it's fair game. And... (laughs) Something I realized today is I have no idea how to spell Courtney Cox. It's not the way that you would think. It's not the way that we've written it several times in in our notes here. It's Courtney. There's there's an E after the T. It's bizarre spelling. I've never seen Courtney spelled that way. I I'll, I'll say I've never watched Friends.
0: Interesting. Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if I would expect that as a spelling. You're right. I think all the people I knew.
1: It's it's like a Bernstein Bears thing to me. That's just
0: unfolded <laughs> today. I thought you were gonna be talking about the last name and other possible spellings of the the word Cox oh, when you no. when you started that. So <laughs> that one we were pretty clear on the. Yeah, no, I I knew that one. Things quickly escalate. The next night, Sydney gets a phone call from. The voice that we know belongs to Ghostface, and it kind of behaves in the same way that it did with Casey. We know that now that Sidney is definitely in danger. He appears, he chases down Sidney, but she manages to escape. And that's going to be a thing that happens like six times throughout this movie, is, is Ghostface appears, almost kills Sidney, but doesn't quite kill Sydney. But one important thing here is, is Billy, the boyfriend, appears shortly afterwards, and Sydney's like, hold on a second. Hmm. Someone just almost killed me, and then you were here. And he's holding a phone. A cordless phone. Right. That's a good point, yes. Another important piece of evidence. So, like, understandably, he is arrested and interrogated and accused of being the murderer, but there's really no evidence implicating him. So he is released.
1: So many times in this franchise, there will be moments where... Ghostface runs off to the side or is knocked away to the side and then some other character runs into the room Uh-huh. and there's tension of oh is this person Ghostface? but like for that to be the case these people have got to be really good at changing their clothes super fast there's
0: like no intervening time i thought about that to me it's not even necessarily the changing okay you're wearing the, the the face mask and you take it off and obviously there's like some changing involved with that. But I feel like the way that the costume is, you could just literally rip that off and like toss it somewhere. Although if you toss it somewhere, I guess it could be seen. But anyways, to me, it's like the mental gymnastics to know to do that and to like be able to play it off perfectly. It's implausible to me that psychologically these people could shift between murder mode and best friend mode on a dime. Yeah, it would it would be really hard
1: to just to do that change and then come into the room. But every time it happens, everybody's tense. It's like, Oh, maybe this is the guy. Right. And who knows? Maybe it is. Well, we'll have to see what happens.
0: (laughs) There's also a little bit of something we talked briefly about in our happy death day episode, which is that a spoiler, the person who ends up being the murderer in that is not a person you would expect to be like a physical specimen, like just absolutely chasing you down, physically relentless. And I feel like this mask gives the characters some superpowers. Like, although they get knocked down a lot, they like always immediately pop back up and they're like very aggressive and successful at approaching people and killing them to the point that it was kind of implausible that like this was a real human doing these things. Maybe, but they're not really towering like
1: Michael Myers or Jason. They, they look a little scrawny. Like I said, the costume looks kind of cheap to me, which maybe is the point that really anybody could pick this thing up. But yeah, they, they they do get knocked down a lot. They're not infallible. And I was thinking, you know, what would defeat this killer is if like two or three people happen to be in the room <laughs> when they are. But they they're always really good at planning things out so that they're alone with somebody.
0: That's true. Another thing that bugged me along those lines is like there are a few times where Ghostface gets knocked down and the characters literally never have the impulse to grab the mask and take yeah, it off. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole thing. It's like I know they have a knife, so
1: they could like swing it around while you're trying, but it's there's plenty of times where it's like they're they're dazed for a couple seconds it's like you could slip it off poke it with a pole or something just take the mask off and we can be done with the movie
0: (laughs) now it's got to be dragged out to the the last 15 minutes so that's right let's see a couple another a couple other dynamics that that play out here in this mid-portion of the film after billy the boyfriend is cleared by the police they have a confrontation where Billy basically mentions that, hey, my parents got divorced around the same time that your mom died and I got over it. So like, why can't you get over your mom being raped and dying a year ago? And regardless of what this dude, Billy ends up being in the role of the plot, you know that now that he's just a class act, just the type of guy that you want to associate and be friends with going forward after you have a conversation like that. <laughs> or not, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another dynamic. Dewey, the David Arquette. Is that his name? David Arquette, the actor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He's the kind of, sh- I don't know if schlubby's the right word. He's kind of, maybe not dopey. What? Would, how would you describe this character?
1: I think dopey is fair, at least early on. He's like, he's just this nice, like sweet, unassuming dude who's kind of in the background in the first movie, almost. And he, he's the brother of the best friend. There's there's multiple characters in this first one who seem like they're sweet on Sydney and maybe that's playing into them potentially being a suspect. And I got a little bit of that vibe before they started playing up uh, Dewey slash Gale.
0: That's interesting. I, I didn't think about that, but I can certainly see that.
1: Because, you know, there's like the, there's like the scene where she's having the slumber party or whatever over at Tatum's house and Dewey's kind of there oh you got to treat me like I'm a real police officer Tatum you got to respect me
0: it's interesting I feel like his his role in the movie is someone who would typically be cast as someone who's a little hunkier than David Arquette is like he never really comes across as like a super hunky sweetheart type guy he's got this filthy little mustache and he always just seems like I don't know, like someone who was a little bit of a loser in high school or something like that. I don't know.
1: Yeah, he's he's very much in the background in this first movie, and I think I think Courtney Cox probably just actually really liked him, <laughs> and that must have launched his ship. Like, I don't know what else has David Arquette been in? Do you do you know? I really got the vibe that this romance must have blossomed here, and and like guided how the character developed.
0: Um, I, I don't know him from anything else. And when I looked up his Wikipedia article, I think the first sentence was, is an actor who is known for playing the character of Dewey in the Scream franchise. So yeah. I think that might indeed be his, his niche. But I'm not an expert on his career. He's probably done other stuff too. But yeah, another dynamic here is, as, as we've already mentioned, Dewey is, is apparently flirting and romancing with the Courtney Cox character. I didn't feel it too much. Like, I kind of always thought that it was either staged or superficial in some way, but that's the through line of the whole series. So I guess we're supposed to buy it as, as real. But things definitely take a turn shortly thereafter when we see Principal Himbri call off school and like after the school day ends, Ghostface appears in his office and he is brutally murdered, escalating the violence here. I will say there was like half a
1: scene where they wanted you to maybe consider that it might be Fonzie going around killing people (laughs) because he's like holding some delinquents for detention and he says something along the lines of, oh, your generation, you ruin everything. You're just, you're losing morals. Everything's falling apart because you don't care about anything. And he starts swinging a knife around with like exaggerated sound effects.
0: And I I think he says, you don't deserve to be expelled. You deserve to be gutted or something like that. Uh, Yeah, he, the movie basically on every single character gives you like one or more moments to think that this person could plausibly be the killer. It would
1: have been interesting, but pretty quickly he's dead.
0: Well, I've kind of already spoiled that Dewey sticks around and is not the bad guy. He was the guy who I thought was going to be the killer as this movie was going along. And I thought that would have been really interesting to have this like trusted authority figure be the one who's instigating the violence. But spoiler, he's not, not the one. But that was my pick. At this point, did you have any pick for who you thought the murderer was going to be? So I wasn't totally
1: unconvinced it was Billy. Because he does kind of seem like a creep, and he was really the first one to do that thing where Ghostface goes off to the side, and then Billy pops up. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think he was off the table. Although, like, shortly after he gets arrested, there's another Ghostface call. Uh, Maybe another killing, but it's clear that Ghostface is still doing stuff while he's in jail, so he's cleared at least somewhat. Right. So then I was thinking about some other possibilities. Uh, Randy came to mind. This is the guy who really knows horror movies and he works at a video store. Uh, Shout out to all the old cathode ray TVs in this movie. And like television cabinets sized to fit the four by three full screen aspect ratio. Right. I just, I love all that furniture and then seeing the like blockbuster where Randy works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that as well.
1: Also, Randy makes a few asides that he is interested in Sydney as well. And that, oh, if only we could get this
0: Billy out of the way. Right. He he definitely gets set up as a potential suspect. And he's like going on and on about how what the killer should really do in this scenario is blank. And so it makes you think it might be him. And he's actually the one who provides the most on-the-nose meta-commentary. As the movie is going along, it's like, oh, you you know that the suspect would be the boyfriend because of this, but it wouldn't really be the dad and there would be a twist. And he's kind of like breaking down what the movie is going to do in 30 minutes. And there's a, an interesting scene to come where he's talking about the movie. I think it's Halloween and, and all of the stuff that plays into that and the things that lead to you dying. And of course, we get a couple of scenes of people doing those things and then dying like having sex, saying you're going to go get a drink, and, and leaving the crowd, and, and things like that. So Yeah, never
1: say, I'll be right back, because you won't be right back. And then, shortly after, uh, one of the other kids at the party says,
0: I'll be right back! Yeah, it's, it's Matthew Lillard, and then he gives one of his great faces from the movie. So, yeah.
1: He's always mugging.
0: Yeah, there is indeed a big party where everybody congregates that night, and... Basically, everybody shows up, and so since we know everybody's showing up, we know that people are going to start dying. We know Ghostface is there somewhere. He or she is probably hopping in and out of the place where everyone is, killing people. And among the people to die, first is Tatum, the best friend, and she gets maybe the gnarliest death of the film. She gets stuck in this garage door, and Ghostface raises the garage door, and her head gets crushed in the garage door as it goes up so here's something kind of interesting i had heard
1: this scene described when i was like a little kid i didn't even know it was in this movie i thought it was one of the Friday the 13th and like just the idea of the scene in my head has scared me for a long time finally seeing it it didn't bother me as much as i was expecting (laughs) but it's this movie it's in scream
0: So almost all of the deaths in this movie are like stabbing with a butcher knife. This one reminded me of what I think of with Final Destination, where you get in this like really horrible, but unlikely circumstance of like some sort of machinery and happenstance colliding to this one gruesome thing that like you maybe imagine could happen to you, but like isn't something that is really likely to happen in real life. That's right. It's
1: like slipping in the shower and you get hanged or you like step on a tack and fall over a balance beam and like the air conditioner gets unscrewed from the ceiling and falls down on your head or something.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Rube Goldberg stuff. Kind of silly, but entertaining to see how they set them up.
0: Yeah. So there's this kind of comic bit. One of the funnier actual bits in the film, for me at least, is one of the things that makes you die is having sex. And so then we cut to Sydney giving in and finally having sex with Billy, giving in to his advances. And like immediately afterwards, Billy is stabbed like right after hooking up with Sydney. The, the last major death early on in this, this evening is the cameraman of Gail. So, so Gail is there. I can't even remember exactly why she shows up. I think she thinks that something might happen to Sydney or something but they set up this camera that they have on a 30 second delay and it's this really creepy thing where we see Ghostface appear and look like he's going to stab someone but then he disappears and we see it as the cameraman sees it and it's on 30 second delay he's like and they're like oh that's crazy and then they look up and Ghostface is right there because in the 30 seconds since that he has walked towards the the van and he ends up killing the cameraman kenny so these are all people that we can ostensibly cross off the list of of possible suspects but um i think my favorite bit there was the 30 second delay but i thought that was pretty clever yeah there's a couple good
1: moments of setup and payoff in this movie that's one of them where earlier they're you know setting all the cameras up and they mention well there's a 30 second time delay and another is early on when the dad comes in to talk to sydney at the start of the the movie, basically. The room is set up so that if her closet door is open, the door of the room can't open. They, like, clack into each other. And the dad kind of awkwardly, like, peeks in and is, and is talking to her through the crack in the door. And then later, the like, the first time that Ghostface shows up and attacks her at her house, he slams into the door and the same thing happens where the doors clack together and he can't get in. So it's kind of making you think, oh, maybe it's the dad, because it's the same thing happening. But in any case, whoever it is, it's like call and response, set up and, and pay off.
0: Right. That is a good one. Yeah, um, I agree that this that there's there's a lot of cool stuff where it kind of lays out what could happen. And then you see it happen down the line. I agree that was a pretty satisfying portion of the, the screenplay here. The one other thing that's going on during this is, Dewey and Gale are getting more FaceTime and they're following a lead that there is a missing car near the the house where this party is going on and they discover that it turns out to be Sydney's dad's car and this whole time Sydney's dad has basically been off the grid and he didn't show up at the hotel he was supposed to be at I wonder if that's another uh, psycho reference I feel like that happens in Psycho too but I think it's like trying to make us think real hard that the dad is the potential murderer and it's trying just hard enough that, you know, that he's not actually the murderer at this point in part because we haven't seen him on screen all that much. And that would be kind of,
1: well, at this point I was wondering maybe it is the dad because, you know, maybe Billy was ruled out by the thing. So possibly maybe
0: there's, there's a lot of ghost face chasing down this group of people who have survived and most of them manage to barely escape here. But at last, um, we, we get a scene where Billy, the boyfriend, shoots Randy, the film geek character, and reveals that Ghostface is indeed Billy, but not just Billy, but also Stu, character play by Matthew Lillard. There's two murderers. They're, they're, they're in cahoots. They're working together. And they were indeed inspired by the classic slashers, as Randy had been talking about. The thing where Billy got stabbed was something they elaborately designed up front, I guess, to make it look like a fake stabbing. And they are they are indeed both the killer. So uh, we now have our identity revealed. It is Billy and it is Stu. So... What did you think of the fact that there were two killers? And what did you think of the selection of their identities here?
1: So I figured for it to be Billy, there would have to be a second one. I don't understand why it was Stu, why it was Shaggy, Matthew Lillard doing this. Because we get, you know, the villain monologue after the reveal. And Billy gives a motivation for why he's doing what he's doing. But Matthew Lillard really doesn't. He just says, oh, peer pressure. Billy wanted me to do it, so I did it. And I I, I think maybe he's just like a sick fuck. Because at the start of the movie, I mean, he's the first one making light that their friend just got murdered. Yeah. He's like making jokes about it. So I guess he's just a twisted guy.
0: I was going to say, if anyone here, like, just based off of their performance in the film up to this, Like, let's say there was no murders involved. If you were to ask which one of these people is a psychopath, definitely Stu is the one that you would point at right there. (laughs) So I was mixed on this revelation. I thought it was odd that the movie pointed us towards it being Billy so many times, and then it actually was him. Like, it's not just that scene where he appears, but there's like two other times where they say, Hmm, maybe it is Billy. Don't you still think it might be Billy? And the fact that it was leaning so hard on that and then still ended up being him to me was a little disappointing. It wasn't it didn't seem very clever. I don't know. It seemed heavily foreshadowed. Although when I rewatched the movie to make the notes, I felt like it kind of actually fit. I was a little mixed on it. I don't know. And then the other thing that's interesting is like we're definitely led to believe that it's one person And so you're kind of ruling people out one at a time. And then the fact that there ends up being two of them, but also one of them like fake killed one of them. It felt just a hair cheap to me. Then again, I think this movie's strengths are less in the whodunit element and more in the suspense element. And so it didn't diminish my overall experience all that much. Although if like I were crafting this as an ideal mystery, I would have done it slightly differently from my perspective.
1: Yeah. I'd say in all of these, like the reveal comes and it's a little bit of a letdown in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's all, almost like I, I would prefer the the monster being unmasked, almost. But uh, I mean, it is, it is kind of a key. It, it's... I think if you took out the mystery element, it would not... Maybe the rest of it wouldn't stand on its own quite as much, but... Because it's just... It is a big part of it.
0: Out of all the killers we see... I think there was there was one I really liked as The Revelation, and then there were a couple that I kind of liked as The Revelation. And this one was okay for me. The reason that it ended up being kind of okay for me is that, like the last 15 minutes of this movie, we get the full unhinged Matthew Lillard experience, complimenting this grease ball, skeet Ulrich performance. Even if the identities themselves were a little bit underwhelming, it ends up, Working out pretty well from an entertainment perspective. Yeah, because what happens? We get a monologue from Billy stating that his motive is he's getting revenge on Sydney because the thing that we learned earlier that his parents got divorced around the time that Sydney's mom died, well, those things were actually connected. It turns out that Sydney's mom had been having an affair with Billy's dad, which Sydney did not know about, but that was in fact the thing that caused. The divorce of Billy's parents. And in retribution, Billy was in fact the one who killed Sydney's mom. Leif Schreiber was framed. Cotton is innocent. He was innocent all along, except maybe of having an affair with a married woman. But that was like a kind of double revelation here that it wasn't just Billy doing the recent murders, but the kind of inspiring trauma of this film, which is the rape and murder of Sydney's mom, was perpetrated by Billy. And what I
1: wanted to know, and it's never explained, at least in any of these first four films, they do flesh out the mother's backstory a little more in, in later movies, but I want to know, was Billy Ghostface when he killed the mom? Mm. Did that identity come about later or had he had that in the works all along, even
0: a year ago before we see it? That's intriguing. It also doesn't make any goddamn sense why they killed Casey yeah, why did he kill Drew Barrymore? What's the connection? I didn't see that at all. And it's possible there was like a line of dialogue that hand waved it away. But if there was, it doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. But I I still think it's okay because if you look at each of these things in isolation, it more or less works and it doesn't bother me too much. But you're right that I think (laughs) there are some open-ended questions here. You know what? Maybe Stu did that one just for kicks. Right. The Freakazoid, Matthew Lillard, Nick Cage, jumping around, making the goofiest faces guy. Yeah, I could see him doing that just for the hell of it. I feel like they might have had to collaborate on the Casey one, though, because that didn't seem like a one man job with getting the boyfriend and tying him up stuff. I don't know. So Billy and Stu have this whole plan to basically frame Sydney's dad for the murders. Turns out Sydney's dad is tied up in the closet and... Part of it is they have to make it seem like Sydney's dad attacked them. So they have to stab each other, I guess, to like give them plausible deniability of being the actual suspect. Because why would you have a stab wound if you are, in fact, the one running around stabbing people?
1: Oh, this is the part of the movie that got to me. This, to me, was the grossest part. I did not like them (laughs) stabbing each other just so that they could be stabbed and show that they had been stabbed. Right. Because they're like, oh, yeah, if you stab me in the arm, it'll be fine. But then they're bleeding all over the place. (laughs) It's just so, like, unceremonious. And, like, all the other stabbings are, like, very suspenseful and sudden. And this is just like, well, we got to do this now. Stab, stab. (laughs) And and Matthew Lillard gets stabbed too deep, and it's clear that he's dying. He's like, um, and he just, he does this great whining that had me laughing. (laughs) He's like, oh, I'm not feeling good, man. You cut me really deep. And there's this part that I think must have been improvised. I think the Amazon fun fact said it was improvised where Stu is sitting at the table, like retching, bleeding profusely. And Billy is holding the phone and he runs around the corner and it falls out of his hand and bounces off Matthew Lillard's head. <laughs> and Matthew Lillard says, you hit me with the fucking phone, man. <laughs> and I busted out laughing. That's good, yeah.
0: Uh, no, I like that. I, I I see what you're saying about this scene slipping you out. I really liked it. I, I just loved seeing these characters. Like, there was something cathartic about it. Like, having to... Digging deep and then kind of like losing control of themselves for a little bit. It was just kind of a weird aside that I was appreciative that the movie included. We'll get one more of those, I think, in uh, Scream 4 that I also really enjoyed the moment of it. But yeah, so so it seems like Billy and Stu have this thing lined up. But it starts to go south for them after they stab each other. The gun disappears and Gail shows up. She's the one who grabbed the gun. She shoots Billy and then in one of maybe the most satirical death of the film, Sydney kills Stu, the Matthew Lillard character by knocking one of those massive old school TVs right onto Stu's head and like electrifying him. And you get like the smoke, the burning face coming off. So now Stu is dead. Billy's kind of hanging around, but he's shot and he kind of rises after the gunshot wound, but he's finally taken down a couple more shots. There's some joke about how the killer always rises at the end. But the real ending, and I thought this, I like this, I thought this was like a clever satire and commentary on the nature of media, which would be delved into much deeper in the second film. But Gail Weather is like having recently barely survived a serial killer, basically hops right onto the news and is giving the the news story about what just happened as as the movie winds down at the, the end of the film. So the survivors here are we have Sydney survived. We have Gail survived. Dewey was stabbed, but apparently he actually survived. And Randy, the film geek, he was also stabbed, but he rises at some point, too. So those are kind of the main people who, who survived this this first movie as we kind of wrap it up.
1: Yeah, and as it'll turn out, they have some staying
0: power. Right. When we look at the sequels here in a minute, we're obviously not going to do this full plot breakdown like we did for those. But I did line up those across a few topics that I think are relevant. So I I wanted to make sure we hit those for for this first one, too. And I was going to ask you, Brian. So what do you think is the most iconic scare of this first movie?
1: I think it's got to be that first phone call.
0: Yeah, for me, absolutely. The the opening scene is the the iconic scare of this film. I also did a body count and I came up with eight deaths. Seven of them happen on screen. One of them happens off screen and that is Sydney's mom. I counted it because it's related to the killer that we end up dealing with. And then if you exclude the villains and Sydney's mom, you're down to five people we actually see on screen, which is actually fewer than... I would have guessed by the end of the movie, but it it paces them carefully. So uh, I'll I'll mark it down as eight as the body count. And the the one-off cast members from this one are Matthew Lillard, Skeet Ulrich, Henry Winkler, and Rose McGowan are the the major ones. Which I would say ranks among the weaker one-off casts of the the Scream movies. Although I I really loved Matthew Lillard. I, I liked his energy here. I thought he brought something special, and I'm glad he did.
1: Yeah, I, I saw a lot of familiar faces as this franchise went along, and I was pretty surprised. I, I was not expecting Fonzie to be here. so
0: That was fun, yes. Fonzie was good. So before we jump to the sequels, we typically we do our what are some good things and some not-so-good things. So Brian, I was going to ask you, let's focus on this first movie as opposed to the franchise in general. What are some good things and not-so-good things about Scream?
1: So you're right that it builds up a lot of good suspense. I like these creepy phone calls. It's a trope. It was already a trope by the time the movie came around. But I-, I like the interplay, the back and forth between the ghost face and whoever he's talking to. We find out late in the movie that the way that Billy and Stu do this voice is they have a little like voice changer. A speaker thing that they talk into and it makes the voice. And I don't know if this thing is commonly available. One thing I was wondering as the, the series goes along is, how did they know to copy the voice? All these different people who assume the mantle. It's like, okay, so you can go out and get the costume, but how do you know what he sounds like? Who could tell you what he sounded like other than Billy and Stu who are dead and Sydney, who seems to be, you know,
0: traumatized? My headcanon on that, that I cannot say is true at all, but an explanation for me is that there's one brand of voice masker that does that specific creepy voice. Yeah, I think and you're
1: right. It's, it, maybe the gadget is commonly available. Yeah.
0: In like the last
1: movie, they specifically say there's an app you can get.
0: And I would definitely believe that. The third one, which we'll get to, does some interesting things with the voice machine that I think are controversial.
1: Yeah, I was that was straining credulity, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, what about
0: some other good things from Scream 1? I just want to emphasize again that I found this movie quite tense and scary. I actually, I literally cannot think of a film where I found the jump scares more satisfying. It both scared me, but like made me want to keep watching. I don't know. It was very gripping to me. Maybe I've grown up a little bit. I did not like jump scares when I was a kid and a teenager, but I've come around on them a little bit and I thought this one was was excellent in that regard. I'll say I talked to one of my friends at work, who's about eight years older
1: than I am. And he said that he watched this movie back in the day, like maybe when he was, um, 17 or, or, or whatever. And that he was like scared enough after the first act of the movie that he had to shut it off and like come back to it later. Wow. And that it just really stuck with him. And I didn't quite feel that, but it can certainly strike a
0: nerve with people. I think we've all got that one movie that like really affects you. It's a movie that I, I was like, I, I watched most of it with my headphones on and I had to like slip my headphones and turn down the volume so that I wouldn't be too startled when I was expecting something to happen. Cause I knew that something was going to jump out and, and get me. And in that regard, I think just in general that the, this movie and really all of the movies are pretty well directed and just well crafted. I feel like Wes Craven really knows where to place the camera, where to point it, how to pace it so that it maximizes the suspense and the gut punch and the the blood pump. When the ghost face actually appears, I really felt like it wasn't ever cheap or, or clumsy in that regard. So, I mean, maybe that's more of a franchise wide observation, but I I really noticed in this first one, just like the closet thing, a closet would close and there would be ghost face. And the way it was shot, it, it, scared me it was really good I thought yeah this
1: is a little shallow but I think it's intentional so I'll call it out is that this movie has just an absolute slate of beautiful women (laughs) like I I mean Drew Barrymore has star power but they killed her off after the first scene I was wondering what are they going to do to follow up Drew Barrymore and then there's model Neve Campbell as the star who's going to be with us for a long time. And she's best friends with Rose McGowan. And then Courtney Cox from the like early seasons of friends shows up. Yeah. I mean, they got some pretty faces here.
0: Indeed. And that would not go away as the sequels went along. No, not by any means. I've already mentioned most of my other good things. A couple things I didn't like about this movie. So Brennan Klein has this as five stars on Letterboxd. I respect that, especially given the, influence it had on him I'm just going to come out and say this is not a five star movie for me there's a couple things that brought me out of it a little bit and I've already talked about some of them but one is I was I don't know I feel like this movie is set up to be more of a horror comedy than it actually is like it's really not actually that funny it has some moments that verge into black comedy particularly like when they're stabbing each other that made me laugh a little bit but I kind of feel like a version of this movie that I would like more is if it got a little sillier while still being jump scary. I don't know. I feel like it could have done both of those things, but instead it decided to be neither really thoughtful about its meta stuff or funny about it. And I feel like it needed to, to do something a little more thoughtful than it ultimately did. I guess the meta stuff just felt a little shallow to me. It's like calling out references isn't clever in and of itself. But I feel like this movie leaned on that a couple too many times. True.
1: I can't really know for sure. I think maybe that was a novel thing in 1996. It certainly seems to be the raison d'etre of this movie for me. That it was supposed to be like a culmination of all slasher movies kind of coming together to a singularity. Like this would be where it would peak. This would be where it would end. And so this to me is the one that has the clearest mission statement. Whereas the later ones exist because this one made money.
0: Sure. I think there's something to that. And I also think there's something to your point that in 2021, we got blogs. We got Jenny Nicholson and other YouTube analysts. We got people who really like know the genres of what they're watching inside and out. So we have TVTropes.com. So like we know about tropes that you might not have explicitly talked about. Even if you were like sort of aware of them, you might not have like discussed in a mainstream way prior to this. So I can buy that this would have felt a little more novel and unique and thoughtful than it does today. Sure.
1: Sure. Oh, and by the way, Jenny Nicholson uploaded a video yesterday after not posting anything for seven months. So
0: I saw that. It was Dear Evan Hansen, Takedown. She's still with us. Yes. Yeah. Last thing, I thought the cast overall was a mixed bag. There were some roles I liked. I'm not crazy about David Arquette. I really don't. He doesn't do much for me. He He's just kind of there for me. His His mustache is really bad. I don't know. Maybe that's <laughs> judgmental of me. I don't know why he had to have a mustache. He's a cop. I guess so, yeah. But I I like some of the performances. I think Nev Campbell is good. I I think she actually more or less gets better as the series goes along. But I was overall medium on the acting. Not not wild about it. Although I already mentioned a couple of favorites as we went. Matthew Lillard, Shaggy being, for me, the entertainment highlight. Uh, I'm ready to talk about the sequels, and we'll keep this more... uh, bullet pointy here any thoughts before we move to the sequels just that over the course of the franchise it
1: builds and builds the meta nature of the films they're going to comment on horror movies slasher movies but more specifically than that this movie and like they're going to start making movies about this movie in the follow-ups to this movie And like each successive one, they're going to talk about, oh, this is the sequel. Oh, this is the third one. To the point that before long, there's going to be actors playing the characters who aren't the actors that we've seen, but they're like interacting with each other. It's complicated. It's interesting. Let's go.
0: Yeah, let's go for it. So I will say we're going to be full spoilers. Are you okay with that, Brian? Yeah, that's fine. So... Scream 2 came out one year later, which is pretty impressive turnaround. 1997. The premise of this one is uh, Scream 1 was in high school. Scream 2 is Sydney's a freshman in college. And Gale has written a book that's becoming a movie based on the Woodsboro murders ordeal.
1: And that was the town from the first one.
0: Right. So this comes to theaters. And so the whole thing here is that Sydney is basically reckoning with this new fame and notoriety, and right around the time of the movie's debut, a new Ghostface starts stalking and killing Sydney's peers at college, and indeed trying to kill Sydney again, just like Billy and Stu in the first one. Oh, so one thing we didn't say
1: about Scream One, 1996, there's not a single black person in the entire film. <laughs> Everybody's white. Maybe the maybe the last film where you could get away with that. I don't know.
0: Yeah. With such a large cast, at least. That's a good point. Scream 2 goes out of its way to point that out in the opening scene. There must have been like a Vulture article or something about that, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like that got pointed out and they're like, eh, you got a point. And then they corrected on that. But the opening murder in this one, as I mentioned, the opening murders tend to be an iconic thing in the Scream series. So we're at a raucous opening screening of this movie, that is based off of the things that happened in the previous movie. When I say movie previous movie, I mean Scream 1 and when I say screening of a movie here, it's a film within a film and it is called Stab and it is very clearly a play on Scream. Right. And it I mean it's based on the
1: murders that happen. So it is that same story, real murders within the world of the film but dramatized here.
0: And we see the opening scene of that Film within a film, and it's framed exactly like the Drew Barrymore murder scene that opens Scream, but it's Heather Graham, who we talked about in Boogie Nights, basically playing the Drew Barrymore role in in this film within a film. And indeed, she gets murdered just as Drew Barrymore does. And the opening murders that are actually real within the movie universe are people who are at this movie. Uh, one is played by Jada Pinkett, soon to be Jada Pinkett Smith. One is played by Omar Epps. And they are killed during this raucous opening screening of it, which is pretty clever.
1: I loved this scene. This was my favorite opening of the series, even over the Scream 1 opening, because it was just wild. Everybody at this theater, you know, every other person has got a, a face costume on and they're all waving around plastic knives but it pulls in, like, deeper cut references to horror film history because they've got, like, a William Castle theater gimmick rigged up where an usher stands off to the side and turns a crank and this, like, paper ghost face flies over the audience and there's a title card that says it was filmed in Stabbo vision So it's like throwing it back to 50s B-movies, like, even before the slashers.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I I dug this scene. And it does really interesting energy stuff with having these fake ghost face people who are just dressing up for the movie and then having a real kill, killer actually appear.
1: Yeah, it's genuinely pretty creepy the way that uh, Jada Pinkett gets stabbed and then like crawls out onto the stage and everybody's acting like it's a shadow cast like Rocky Horror Picture Show or something.
0: Right. Yeah, it's... it's It's clever, I agree, for sure. So some of the interesting twists on this one, as Brian mentioned, it escalates the meta elements here. The theme here is sequel tropes, but also just emphasizing the film in a film thing with Stab and having the kind of popularity of that Stab movie being a stand-in for things that caused outrage. And I think there were actually some like documented... Maybe not copycat killers, but killers who said that they were fond of the Scream movie and that getting like bad press for for Scream 1. This movie actually seems to kind of reckon with that violence a little bit, which I thought it did more with the meta stuff than the first one did in a kind of a more thoughtful way, at least.
1: Yeah, when the killer is revealed at the end, he says something to the effect of, and even when I go to trial, they won't convict me because I'll blame the movies. And this was even a couple years still before Columbine. I mean, it was already a topic in the news at this point, but, you know, the resurgence of do violent video games make people violent? Do violent movies make people violent? Right. Very of the times, still
0: relevant today, but certainly a a hot topic in the 90s. Another interesting thing this movie does that I enjoyed is, so Scream 1 is kind of very direct and focused this one does some fun trippy stuff and some of the imagery it uses is almost spiritual so one really compelling scene at least for me compelling is sydney is like in a theater troupe and she is cast in a greek tragedy where they're wearing masks as she's acting in this scene we see her hallucinating that various members of it are in fact ghost and we as the audience are not sure whether she is just hallucinating or in fact seeing her killer. I think it ends up being the killer isn't there, it was just her hallucination. But this sort of like subjective viewpoint stuff is pretty clever and not something we saw in the first one. And so I thought that that was an interesting way to kind of expand the scope of the film for the second one. I really like that.
1: Yeah, I like that scene quite a bit. It's got this whole Greek chorus of people in the tragedy masks and cloaks and waving around daggers, and it gives the masked killer kind of an ancient legacy, like extending it out that this is an image, perhaps, in the cultural imagination since long before the 80s and the 70s.
0: Right. Another scene I liked that was kind of charged is towards the end of the movie. A victim kind of descends from the heavens, crucified on a cross, not actually crucified at that point, ends up dying still, but just adds like a spiritual imagery element to it that that kind of heightened it for me, that I kind of dug um, in kind of the same way that I did that, that other scene, the Greek tragedy scene. So a couple of cool thoughts here. Um, what did you think was the, did you have any distinct, most iconic scares from the second one, Brian? Well, I really like the scene when
1: it's about like end of the second act where Dewey and Courtney Cox, Gail Weathers have both arrived at this. It's like a projection booth of a movie theater and there's a, they're on separate sides of the the wall inside the projection booth. And neither can hear the other one. And then, like, Dewey is in the, the theater part, and Gail is in the booth part. And Ghostface pops up and starts stabbing Dewey. And so he's screaming and pounding on the window, and she's screaming and pounding on the window. But the camera keeps cutting back and forth. And when it's on Dewey's side, he can't hear Gail. And when it cuts into Gale, we get this, you know, very spooky feeling where Dewey is being massacred, but we can't hear anything. We can't hear any of that.
0: I'm with you. I really like this scene as well. It might have been my second favorite scene of the movie behind the the Greek tragedy thing that we talked about. I thought it was really clever the way that it blended the silence of the violence of the the two different sides of this soundproofed room. I, I agree completely. Also, Dewey gets really got in this scene. Like,
1: also, he was limping around the whole movie. Like, they say that he got stabbed once in the first film and it, like, paralyzed a nerve, and so now he's walking weird. But he shows up in three looking better than he did in two. And he got, like,
0: hauled out on a stretcher at the end of two. I was sure he was gone. I agree. It's kind of bullshitty. They're like, well, we have our three leads, and they show up in every screen movie. So they have plot armor and nobody else in this movie has plot armor.
1: And I think Courtney Cox just really liked him for some reason that I can't discern, but <laughs> she maybe had in her contract that he had to, he had to be around.
0: Yeah. My boyfriend, soon to be husband's going to show up there now that I'm with you on that. I thought that was kind of bullshitty too. So the, the new and or one-off cast members of Scream 2, best of the series by far. Just a couple of the highlights. Uh, Leave Schreiber is here as Cotton in his most prominent role among the series. He appeared in one and he appears briefly in three. But this is really his movie to the extent that he has one. Lori Metcalf appears. We're going to talk about her in a second as one of the killers. She here plays a, a reporter. We have Sarah Michelle Geller. She dies pretty early on. We have Jada Pinkett, Omar Epps, Timothy Oliphant, He has been in various dramas and is a skilled actor in his own right. Heather Graham, we mentioned. Portia de Rossi, she's Lindsay in Arrested Development. She plays a mean girl sorority sister in this. Jerry O'Connell plays the kind of D-baggy boyfriend in this.
1: Yeah, Jerry O'Connell, the fat guy from Stand By Me as a kid who underwent a serious long bottoming and (laughs) became an action star later on.
0: Right. One you pointed out to me is David Warner plays the drama teacher.
1: Yeah, so this movie, Scream 2, is like the reunion of Good's familiar faces because David Warner plays Spicer Lovejoy, and Hockley's, like, bodyguard in Titanic, T97. Heather Graham, of course, was Roller Girl in Boogie Nights. And Lee Schreiber was the time traveler in Kate and Leopold.
0: Right, pulling them all together. They're all here. The last notable face is Luke Wilson is in the film within the film. You might know him from, I think he's the star of uh, Old School. And he's been in a couple of things. But yeah, really just just a lot of faces in this one. And uh, I I really enjoyed it. I think that's one of the reasons that this one kind of shines personally. So the, the culprits, the killers this time around, who, who's wearing the ghost face mask? So again, we, we go with the two killers route. And I think I'm glad that it repeated this, this two killer thing, because then it gives us a frame of thinking as we watch these movies, who are the two killers and how could they be connected? In this case, the two killers are one is Mickey, who's played by Tim, Timothy Oliphant, and he is kind of an aspiring serial killer who is posing as one of the friends of Sydney's group. I think he's like a best friend of the boyfriend or something like that. The other one more interesting and to me much more compelling is Laurie Metcalf's character appeared as like a local beat reporter who kind of challenges Courtney Cox a couple times and fawns over her a little bit. And she ends up being revealed as the orchestrator of all the murders. And indeed her secret identity is she is Debbie Loomis, Billy's mom from Scream 1. I liked that she was secretly a journalist because it played up the media satire elements of the, the story. Yeah, I almost would
1: have liked her not to be related to Billy if she was just, like, either a crazy fan or a crazy critic of Gale.
0: Oh, interesting, yeah.
1: And that that motivated her to get involved with this case.
0: So one thing I know about this movie is... Scream was such a big hit that there were lots of leaks on set about what was going on, who was the cast, who is the murderer is going to be. And they apparently changed their mind multiple times about who to have the murderers be. And this was kind of like plan C with, with these two people. I think it more or less works, but you knowing that if you watch it, I think you can tell that they didn't really make up their mind when they started shooting, who it was going to be because It seems like it's going down this route of playing up mimicry of the original, when in fact, the actual motive is not like a mimic murder. It's a actual connection to the original thing. So there is a little bit of whiplash in that regard, but I still think it works overall. Any other positive or negative thoughts on this film before we jump to Scream 3? I liked it a lot. And maybe that
1: was just because I wasn't really expecting much. Uh But it was way more of a solid follow-up than I thought it might be going in.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I honestly put it pretty close to the first one. I still think the first one works better overall, but in a similar tier, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I like this one. And the body count, by my measurement, was 10 deaths. And they play that up. They say, oh, in the sequel, there's always a higher body count. That's what Randy says at some point. So. Stupid Randy. No, I'm just kidding. I don't mind Randy.
1: <laughs> I It's a it's a good name to hate. I'll say I didn't like when Timothy Oliphant took off his mask and oh, Mickey is the killer. I had to think. I'm like, wait a minute, who who is this? There's so many people in the movie. I was trying to remember if Mickey had been somebody in the first movie, but he's not. Yeah. He's not in the first one. No. He's just kind of the replacement for Stu, I thought. He's like He's kind of the goofy guy who's not Randy.
0: Right. He's like the best friend of the boyfriend, which is exactly what Stu was. Exactly. I think. So you're right. I think that's a common criticism with the film is you're like, wait, who's this guy again? He's someone who's like in one or two previous scenes, you know? So as this movie,
1: Scream 2 is going along, Dan, before we move on, who were you thinking the killer was going to be?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So I actually did guess Laurie Metcalf's character. I, I think... That worked pretty well. She showed up just the right amount to be an unexpected surprise killer. I thought Jerry O'Connell, I thought they were going to do the boyfriend thing again. They ended up not doing that. That was my other guess. What about you? Who did you think it was going to be? Well, I had some suspicion of Laurie Metcalf, but
1: the route I thought it was going to go was Gale has a new cameraman in this one, Mm. and he's an African-American man. And he's always pointing out that he's in danger and he doesn't want to be in danger. So like whenever something is about to happen, he runs off and he tends to run back on right after something has just happened.
0: That could have worked.
1: Randy gets killed in his camera van. And I thought because it made such a point at the start that the the opening scene was about a black couple that then he was going to show up as the killer at the end. But that's not what happened. I thought it was going to be bookends.
0: That could have worked too, because it could have further played up the media satire element. I like that rewrite. I'm going to pencil that in if I'm rewriting the script. That's the guy I'm picking as the murderer. That's a good one. I like that. Uh, Jumping to Head to Scream 3 from 2000. This one is the only one of the four released so far that was not written by Kevin Williamson. I think he might have made some notes that they more or less discarded for the third one, but he is distinctly not a voice in this one that he was in the first two, as well as the fourth one, but it is directed by Wes Craven as all four of them were. So the premise of this one is the stab series of movies within the movie is continuing to grow in popularity and they're about to film the third one. Hey, that's the the one we're about to watch. And just as that one's being filmed, Ghostface reappears and starts killing again. And he indeed strikes directly at uh, the cast of Stab 3. Um, and he leaves some hints of his own connection to Sydney's mom. The opening murder on this one is Cotton Weary, the Leave Schreiber character. And uh, some of the things it does here is it really leans into the meta stuff. The particular twist here of the filming of a movie within a movie. We get like facsimiles of all the characters. So there is a nev campbell stand-in there's a courtney cox stand-in there's a dewey stand-in and so you get kind of these duplicates in a kind of clever sort of way the the only really good one the highlight for me being parker posey who i know from dazed and confused and kicking and screaming she plays fake courtney cox and they
1: get a lot of interplay together and i thought it was kind of funny because at this point courtney cox and david arquette were married but here in the movie, they're not yet. And so they make some comedy out of them, like bickering with each other. And to sort of each make the other jealous, they're dating the other's doppelganger. So David Arquette is flirting with Parker Posey. And there's like a couple lines between Courtney Cox and the Dewey stand-in. Right. Who's just like another, he's like a super trooper, you know, a... Uh, or a, a Reno 911 guy, just a, a cop with shorts and a mustache. But uh, I, I like any time that a movie does that, where there is a, a real life couple, but then the movie is like, oh, they'll, they can't be together. They'd never be together. Sort of um, like Charlie and the Waitress on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I agree, although I felt like this movie overall didn't make the most advantage of this setup with like the duplicates of the doppelgangers, I felt like it had this really cool setup, but it, it didn't have as much fun with it as it could. Like, I don't know, for example, the Nev Campbell stand-in doesn't really end up getting all that much to do and stuff. To me, I love the setup and I loved the idea of it, but I wasn't quite as engaged as it was going along as I wanted it to be. Some other interesting things from this one, we get recreations of the sets of the very first movie, which leads to... What it's going to be my most iconic scare in a minute, but we have adding it to the meta stuff. They're like recreating stuff from movies we've already seen. And I think the last the last couple of compelling things here, or at least noteworthy things, one is it really adds in this new layer of voice faking. So now Ghostface can not just have his one creepy voice, but can have any fake voice. This technology does not exist in real life.
1: Yeah, you can't do this. Like, so there are deep fakes on YouTube where they can, like, make Obama deliver any speech. But that's because he has this big database of everything he's ever said on TV is accessible and available. You don't just have some random townsperson's voice recorded like that. You couldn't do this.
0: Right. It does add a new layer of, like, mystery and disguise, but it's kind of bullshit and I think a lot of people don't like it who watch this movie. At least I know Brennan is not very fond of this layer on this one. The last kind of interesting thing is, it, since it's leaning so hard on the meta movie making stuff, it, it brings in this layer of the casting couch. So the thing where the way that the female stars are made is they have to sleep with someone higher up which is, like, a really potent thing to mine, especially, like, nowadays. We know how prominent that was as, like, an abuse scheme among these producers. Yeah, you gotta sleep with the producer. Producers are
1: sexually predatory on their actresses. And who produced this movie, Dan?
0: (laughs) Well, it was a Miramax movie, so, of course, produced by Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, and
1: the Me Too movement was kicked off with Rose McGowan complaining about
0: Harvey Weinstein, so... Yeah, here we are. Very (laughs) relevant. Truth in art. The one complaint I have about it, although I think that was one of the more interesting ideas here, I feel like it did a little bit too much of blaming the women, the victims in this scenario of that abuse. And it kind of bordered on slut shaming, particularly as it like really it, it basically makes Sydney's mom a bad guy for being in this scenario and like having multiple sexual partners, which I think I don't know. I like to think we would be a little bit more open-minded about women's sexual politics in 2021, but maybe not.
1: Well, this movie wasn't made in 2021.
0: That's yeah, that's true. So for the most iconic scare for me, the one was when Sydney gets chased down by Ghostface in a recreation of the place where the original murders happened, the the house is recreated and she's she's chased through it or maybe it's like her family house or something like that i thought that was really clever
1: yeah it's super weird because i mean obviously real people were really getting killed in the real house within the fiction of the movie but now here is sydney sitting in this recreated copy of her house and just like experiencing the ghoulishness of that That. Now, people have recreated her childhood home where so many traumatic things happened for entertainment. Right. And then it gets crazier because Ghostface shows up and starts chasing her around. And, you know, she assumes that it's laid out like her house is because the parts that she's seen so far are identical. And then she, like, goes through a door and it's just empty void. And so it's not all the same. Parts of it are, are still facades and theatrical and fake. Really cool.
0: I agree. Um, I also liked when Jenny McCarthy hid from Ghostface in a costume room filled with Ghostface masks. I thought that was cool.
1: What I thought was creepiest, though, and what I think affected me most of the series, is Sydney witnesses like apparitions of her dead mom that are skulking around. And um, some of it is dreams, I think, that she has. And some of it is the Ghostface killer in this one like imitating her
0: with the time traveling voice box
1: right so there's iffy whether that could actually happen but it was just really creepy one of the things that she does is she appears in a body bag and then the body bag gets up and starts following her around and for whatever reason that really made my skin
0: crawl yeah that was creepy the cast on this one uh, we already talked about Parker Posey Jenny McCarthy appears as one of the doppelgangers. You have Scott Foley. He plays the director. Emily Mortimer plays the Nev Campbell doppelganger. Patrick Warburton, you may know as Krunk from Emperor's New Groove, appears here. He's like a bodyguard. Those are the notable new ones. I thought this had the weakest cast of the, the four that we've seen. And the culprit ends up being... This is the only one that has one culprit. It's the director, Roman Bridges who is the one played by Scott Foley. And it turns out he's a secret child of Maureen Prescott, who is Sydney's mom. And he also stages his death, just like Billy in the first one. One notable thing is early drafts of this had a second killer. And that was the character Angelina Tyler played by Emily Mortimer, who's the fake Sydney, the Sydney doppelganger, which I think could have had, could have been kind of poignant if they had teased that one out, but I guess they didn't. But because things are so
1: ridiculously meta by this point, they tie that into the story, that there's multiple versions of the script for the movie within the movie. And the killer is supposedly killing people in the order they die in the script. But then it comes out, actually, there's more than one script. So who dies next?
0: (laughs) I thought that was a little bit funny, too.
1: What it made me think of (laughs) by this point in the third chapter was High School Musical 3 weirdly enough because that one also started to get crazy meta like what is even real oh yeah you know eventually the characters are performing in a musical called senior year in their senior year and they're like playing
0: themselves i can see that connection that's a good connection i'm glad you brought that one in it is kind of like that it's so hard on the hey this is a trilogy hey there are versions of characters who are yourselves it got really nested in that. And I'll just reiterate, I thought it, I wish it had done a little bit more with it. I don't know why, but I like in High School Musical 3, I found that entertaining. And here I just felt it missing its potential. So,
1: yeah, I mean, it was it was odd. This the second movie like pays homage to movies that are better than their first installments. And they're talking about, oh, like Empire Strikes Back. God, I love Empire Strikes Back. Way better than Return of the Jedi ended up being. And then in the third movie here, Princess Leia shows up randomly. Carrie Fisher is just here.
0: Yeah, there's there's some random cameos that add to the kind of cheesiness of it. But yeah, she appears. There's a reference there. Lots of like what happens in a third installment of a trilogy. How can they make it? People actually care about it, that it plays up. And I counted on the body count for this one. I counted 10, which matches the second one as well. And so now we are on Scream 4. This one came out 11 years after Scream 3. You know, if a movie comes out 11 years after its previous one, it's almost like it's a reboot. And hey, what do you know? This movie is all about joking about reboots. So the premise of this one is on the 15th anniversary of the original Wordsboro Murders. Sydney is back in town. She's doing a promotional tour for a book she wrote. It's like a self-help book. And... Just when she appears and just on this anniversary, a new series of murders happens. But this time, instead of being centered around Sydney, they're centered around her niece, Jill Roberts, who's played by Emma Roberts. The opening murder on this one is, for me, I mean, almost all of the opening murders are good. The third one was a little underwhelming. This one holds a special place in my heart. It does a double fake out. So we we see a film within a film, two layers deep. First, we see two women get stalked down by Ghostface. And then we see that that is, in fact, Stab Six. So it's a movie within a movie. And then we see two other people watching Stab Six. And they say, hey, that's so predictable. That always happens. And then one of them ends up killing the other. Yeah, and those two watching
1: Stab Six are Anna Paquin and Kristen Bell.
0: Right. And and in the the first one, it's Lucy Hale and... Shane Grimes, who, by the way, all four of those, and then the two we'll get to in a second, are all stars in teen dramas in the two thousands. So these were like all pretty big gets, I would say. But then it turns out that that one with Kristen Bell and Anna Paquin are another film within a film, Stab Seven. And so then we get the quote unquote real murder, opening murder, and uh, it's two Woodsboro teams who are hunted down by by Ghostface. One played by Britt Robertson and one played by Amy Teagarden. And um, again, all all of those people were actual teen stars at this point. So I I really liked the the layering it did on this one. So I thought that was clever.
1: Yeah. And this movie is the one that takes the attractive women count to just a ridiculous (laughs) extreme. Yeah, Yeah, cartoonish, because... As you said, revolves around the niece, Emma Roberts, and her best friend is Hayden
0: Panettiere. Yeah.
1: After this, like, long (laughs) retinue of just fake outs of who is it going to be?
0: So in general, this is the most comedic of the four, I would say. And it leans pretty hard on that, that reboot angle. But the other angle it has is a social media element where all of the teens here are talking about live streaming and getting fans and how they want to see the actual thing. And I got to say the social media element, I thought aged pretty well. Like I feel like influencers are now a thing and this seems to kind of predict the idea of the influencer and the social media star more so than that actually existed in 2011.
1: I agree. It was surprisingly timely I was struggling to comprehend that 2011 was 10 years ago. This was for the 15th anniversary, and the next one's going to be for the 25th.
0: That's crazy.
1: But, uh, yeah, the idea of live-streaming your kills. I mentioned that, you know, kind of the idea of blaming violent media for violence was a big topic, hot topic in the 90s, like around when Columbine happened. Uh, of course, now we've got people like the Christchurch killer a couple years ago who, who was live-streaming his kills. And that, that that really is a thing that can happen now. Right.
0: And it also plays with, like, obsessive fan culture. The fact that there are now seven or eight of these stab movies gets played up a little bit, and they have, like, marathons of them and, like, making fun of them and, like, acting out things from it. I thought I also kind of enjoyed
1: Yeah, that's getting up into Saw numbers. I want to know what happens in those other stabs. (laughs) Also, Stab struck me as a weak title, but I'd still like to know more about them.
0: And it definitely is like trying to take versions of different characters that we see in the original and like making them kind of appear here and scream for in the reboot fashion. But most of them get killed off. I actually really like this cast. There's a lot of great comedy actors in it, or at least ones that I have appreciation for. Emma Roberts is there. She's really delightful and magnetic. Um, Hayden Panettiere, also known as the sister of Jansen. She's the scene stealer here. I really liked her. The black detective is also the black guy, I think, in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. I could be wrong. One of the I don't know. There's a, there's a couple of characters here. I'm getting
1: maybe getting them mixed up. I did recognize him from something. I'd say he got my funniest moment in this movie when he gets stabbed in the head, like right in the middle of his head, and it looks pretty deep. Like I think he'd just be dead right away, but uh-huh. he says, "Oh, like I don't know." Something about the the way. Oh, because Ghostface pops up, and he's like, "What the fuck?" And then he pump he stabs him right in the middle of his face and then he has time to go oh (laughs) and just something about that that noise that he made made me laugh because then he like gets up and runs away with this gash just spurting blood everywhere yeah and i i i was i was chuckling at that
0: and adam brody plays the rookie cop he's the white guy he i love adam brody he plays seth cohen in the oc in one of my favorite TV characters of all time. And he's really hilarious. I wish he didn't die in this movie because I want to see him in Scream 5. I really like this guy. This He's a rookie cop here. Great comedic timing. Alison Brie from Community appears. She's kind of like a trashy Hollywood agent. Just a lot of uh, fun faces from the twenty early 2010s, late, late 2000s that pop up here. So I I enjoyed it, this cast. I thought this was right up there with Scream 2 as as the most appealing cast. It doesn't have quite the number of names as that one, but just names that I was appreciative of, this one was there for me.
1: Oh, yeah, I agree.
0: There's just a ton of people in this one. And as far as the most iconic scare, I like the opening in this one, I think. I mean, uh, the the double fake-out murder really got me. Um, I also like the ending when we get a reveal of who one of the murderers is and some of the things that lead to that fallout. I also really enjoyed. Did you have any other iconic scares that you can think of on this one? So I'll say that I
1: watched two, three and four in the space of like 24 hours and also went to work. And, but so I was a little, a little bit tuned out for, for this one, but I I agree that I agree that the opening uh, was strong. And, Well, one thing, I don't know how iconic this is. There's a Culkin in this movie that we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, A Culkin I didn't even know about. (laughs) So a a sibling of Macaulay, of course. I knew about, uh, is it Kieran Culkin? Yes. there's 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 one with a K. And I knew him from Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I I thought they were the only two Culkins, But here is Rory Culkin, And they all have the same face.
0: (laughs) It's true. Man, I didn't realize there were three of them. I thought there were two of them. I got this guy and Kieran mixed up. Because they do indeed all look the same. But you're right. Rory appears. And he's one of the film geeks. But the the two murderers end up being Rory Culkin and... The other one, this is the really big twist. Emma Roberts, the ostensible reboot star, playing the character named Jill Roberts. She's the other character. This is my favorite villain revelation. I love what they did with it. So they make like her a narcissist who's obsessed with being the new star, who needs all the new fans. And it ends up playing in really well with kind of the arc that she has, where she is becoming the new star of the whole murder mystery but she's like actually manipulating that for her own thing. And then she gets to play psychotic for a few scenes. I really liked it.
1: Yeah, I I liked the denouement here. How it, after that's revealed, what happens? Because she's like, oh, I'm going to become famous. I'm going to be the world's darling because I survived Ghostface. And then Sydney shuts that down.
0: Yeah. Well, first she has to like fake her own stabbing. Just like... Uh, Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich from the first one. And so I got a lot of dark comedy value out of her, like framing her own injuries towards the end of the movie.
1: Yeah. She does the, she does the fight club thing where she like throws herself through a glass table.
0: Yeah. And then when she's in the hospital, apparently the victim, she ends up revealing that she knows more than she should and gets suspected as the killer and gets blasted by one of those heart, uh, reviver things by Nev Campbell gets her brain fried and then gets shot again and ends up being killed, which must've been a little bit of a twist. Like if you were going into this movie, you might've thought that she was going to be like the new reboot star. So I I admire that this film went there. So indeed the new scream, scream five will be a reboot reboot. There is a line in scream four
1: where one of the film geeks says, it's not a shriequel, more of a
0: scream ache. (laughs) I like that. Somehow Shrek fit into there when you were saying that. I heard Shrek. I think it was Shriek you said, but yes. Shrek appeared in my head. Well, hopefully um. we'll get Shrek 5 before long also. <laughs> That's a good point. For the Scream 5, I should point out that uh, Kevin Williamson is involved. I don't know if he's the listed writer or if he's just a producer, but he's a creative voice. But as mentioned, Wes Craven for the first time is not helping a Scream movie. So... Uh, you know, in some ways, it's not truly one of the screams, but and it's also not called Scream 5. It's just called Scream again, which I don't like the trend of naming movies. No, I don't like yeah. when they do that. Do something to make me know it's new. I don't want to have to list the year to know which one it is. You know, we're, we're getting close to our wrap up here. Just a couple of overall franchise observations. I have one or two, and then I wanted to pass it to you, Brian. Uh, one is. All of these movies are about 15 to 20 minutes too long. There's no reason for them to be almost two hours.
1: Yeah, each one is roughly like an hour and 50 minutes.
0: Yeah, and two and three, I think, get really up to two hours. Uh, No need for that. Trim them all down. The first one is the the most fleet with its time, and the fourth one is pretty fleet as well. But um, I think they could have all used some trimming. And then the second major observation is I was really tired of the Courtney Cox and David Arquette characters by the fourth one, I don't. We, there's like a, a phoned-in marital strife thing. Somehow David Arquette always survives. I was over these characters by by the fourth movie. I guess they take some pride in keeping them around, but I'm ready to move on to the new set of people. I didn't mind Nev Campbell because she kind of anchors it to the original a little more than the other ones. But uh, give give me some fresh faces. That's that's my take. Any
1: other franchise-wide thoughts? Well, I thought it was striking that so many people stuck around, which is a real rarity in in slasher franchises. Mm -hmm. You got the same director. For most of them, you got the same writer. And that this much of the cast stays alive is a rarity.
0: Right. And I'm ready to throw some some ratings on these movies. Are you, Brian? Yeah, let's do it. We have our signature is a good scale ranging from a one out of eight, which is a very not good. We've given out a few of those. Up to our Masterpiece Rating, an 8 out of 8 de Good. With several ratings there in between. Brian, let's go one by one. Scream 1, is it good? Scream 1 from 1996
1: to me. I was wavering a little bit coming into the episode, but you've talked it up. I am going to give this one a 6 out of 8, a very good. Because it really laid some iconic groundwork. I think that first phone call scene really cemented scream-a-place in horror film history. And the rest of the movie after that is pretty strong, too. There's lots of good scares. I don't know. I, I like the vibe. <laughs> That's something that, if you've listened to us for a while, you know is important. And just the idea that somebody that you know could be sucked into this like horror film obsession to the point that they're
0: slashing people is... Kind of creepy. I'm with you there. I also have it as a very good movie. I think this is getting a six out of eight on my goodness rating. Um, I I really like what it's doing. I, I think there are some elements of it that didn't stick the landing for me. Just enough to, to pull me down. I was bordering on a seven, but I, I'm going to give it a a six, a very good. I agree. The vibe is there. The tension is at its peak in the series. Very scary, very suspenseful, very exciting. And I was just really engaged. I don't know how much it will stand up to rewatches, knowing what I know. Um, I did rewatch it once to make these notes. But when I'm a little detached, I don't know how I feel already knowing who the killer is and whether that takes me out of the suspense of it some. But I had an absolute blast watching it. And I'm going to give that a very good... Moving on to Scream 2, 1997. Brian, is Scream 2 good? Scream 2, I liked quite a bit. It's also going to get a 6.
1: Very good. Actually a hair higher for me than the first one. And I just liked some of the tweaks that it added. I really enjoyed the opening scene at the movie theater. It was my favorite scene of the series. Just a lot of familiar faces in the cast. I think a big part of the reason this one gets boosted for me is just that I didn't have high expectations for it and it turned out to be good. So really, it's pretty close to the first one in my estimation. But some, some eccentricities of this movie I quite enjoyed. What about
0: you, Dan? I am once again with you on this one. I think it is a very good movie. Uh, I think it nearly equals the first. I don't have it quite as high. If I were to rank them, I would definitely put one higher than two. But I think 2 is also a very good movie. And I think that the cast is a step up. I think that some of the scenes are really creative and find interesting ways to amp up the tension. Um, I think that it does some kind of artistic things that the first one didn't do that I appreciated. I do think it doesn't hold together quite as well as the first one. The vibe isn't quite as there for me. And I can tell they were a little slapdash with the ending. And it drags a little more than the first one, but it's pretty close because it does some things really well. So I I also have it as a very good. And and then that moves us to the third one, Scream 3. Ryan, is Scream 3 good? Scream 3 is a small step down. I'm going to give this one a
1: five. I thought it was still a good movie. I really liked... I mean, if Scream is the meta horror franchise... This is where that reached its peak for me. Like, if you hadn't seen the first two screams, I think you'd be very confused in this one. It's like they, they took the premise and ran with it, and I gotta give it some kudos that they went there by having all these doppelgangers, and it's all taken place on the movie set, and how weird it is when she's in her house, but it's not her house, it's a set of her house, when you know that the first one was a set of her house. And just tickles your brain what about you dan
0: i'm i'm similar but i'm a little more down on it than you are i actually thought that this one was a a noticeable tier below the rest of them i'm going to give this one a good ish a four out of eight on our goodness scale i liked in principle some of the meta stuff it was doing but for whatever reason it didn't connect with me um i would blame burnout although i ended up being a little higher on four than three so it's not strictly burnout I think the the voice thing was a little bit cheap and that ended up being such a crucial element of it. And I thought the cast was significantly worse than either two or four. Just overall, the whole product together didn't quite land for me. I still had a good time. It's still a well-made movie. It never descends into the trash level that you expect with some of these late sequels of these horror franchises. It's got the nuts and bolts of a, of a good thriller still. Good pop-ups, jump scares, death scenes and stuff so it's still certainly watchable but it's not quite good for me it's it's goodish, and then that brings us to scream 4 2011 brian Sc- scream 4 good i gave 4
1: my good-ish 4 out of 8 and probably a lot of it is burnout i was kind of rushing to finish it so maybe it deserves a rewatch you're right that it's got a pretty strong cast but i don't know 15 years removed from the original. It's like, do they need to still be making screams? It's clear that this whole series was a passion project of Wes Craven's. So it's good that, you know, he's still got his team doing what it's clear that he cares about. And it does do some new stuff with it. I didn't really get uh, Culkin's motivation for what he's doing. uh, Because right before he stabbed Hayden Panettiere, he was like making moves with her. it was like going well. And why is he now the killer? I don't, I don't know. It's like, what, what is he looking to accomplish here? But uh, yeah, four out of eight for me, but I'm curious to see what happens in five.
0: Yeah. I I think the flip side of that is he was secretly sort of with Emma Roberts, even though she ends up killing him, but he does get to exchange a smooch with her. So, you know, Oh, that's right. (laughs) That's true. We did see that. That's true. Justification. Yeah. So I don't think this is the best scream, but it is the one that I felt the most affection towards in part because of I think why you loved two that you were not expecting much with a late reboot. I was not expecting much with this. I really dug the cast and the tone and the vibe of this one. Like, again, it's not the best scream, but it's might be the one that I hold closest to my heart. Hayden Panettiere rules. Emma Roberts does a great job. Just lots of stuff that still felt timely in the way the other movies don't quite feel timely. They feel a little bit dated love Adam Brody and the, the doofy cops and the, the pop outs and the fake out opening. I was tempted to be cute and give this a, an exceptionally good, a seven out of eight. I don't think it justifies it. I think it's got some bloat. I think it's got a couple of things that don't work, um, but I still really like it and I'm going to give it a very good. So um, this is one that I was, I was quite fond of as well. So um, I, I held this one in slightly higher esteem than you, but um, it seems like more or less we, we agreed that this held up pretty well across four entries and we're pretty excited for the fifth. So I think that would be a fun activity for us, Brian. Yeah,
1: I mean, nothing else comes out in January, so <laughs> why not? Let's hit up the Cineplex if,
0: if it's easy enough to do so. And the trailer just dropped for it and I watched it and I didn't have any strong reactions, positive or negative to it, so... I don't really have any expectations going into Scream 5. But that wraps us up here. And Brian, what are we going to be watching next week?
1: So it's obviously not January yet. It's still October. It's still spooky season proper. Halloween is not yet upon us. And so I have another spooky pick. This is a weird documentary from the 1970s. I know you like those, Dan. And it's called The Amazing World of Ghosts. Now I came across this on the subreddit R Obscure Media, and I think it fits that description. Uh, so <laughs> I'm just gonna let you experience it without really giving too much setup. It's it's just an odd documentary, and it's about ghosts, it's from 1975. It's by a director named Wheeler Dixon, who did like five of these bizarre documentaries around 1975 late 70s, and then pretty much the rest of his career was writing film studies textbooks. I saw you had one on your coffee table the last time I was at your house.
0: Yeah, cool. Well, that that is a good connection. We can talk about that because I really like that book I read, and I'm looking forward to watching something. You know, Scream is an iconic movie. I'm I'm glad we're going to get to see something that is maybe less in the public consciousness that will be a little more obscure for us to talk about. So thank you for picking this one. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Stay tuned, listeners. Join us again. And now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of any of the Scream movies or really any movie that we've previously discussed. Each week, we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast. And if we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. The only submission we got this week was from Brennan. So, Brennan, thank you very much for telling us about why you love Scream. I know it was a, not normally what we would expect from a reader submission, but I'm, I'm picking you as the review of the week for what you told us about why you appreciated Scream. So we would love to hear from any listeners and feel free to send us your reviews of, of whatever we've watched. So,
1: Yeah, so enjoy your rental from Amazon, Brennan. <laughs> I will say this has been our most expensive episode for me so far. $3.99 on each of the Screams on Amazon comes to about 16 bucks, So it's almost like I went to the cinema for real.
0: <laughs> for, for four movies worth of content. So Right. Uh, but this was a lot of fun, Brian. And I know it ran a little bit long, but thank you for indulging me. And uh, listeners, thank you for indulging us as you do week after week. That's
1: the name of the game. Indulgence. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Have a good one,
1: everyone.